tons of, there's, you know, dozens actually of British physicians deployed throughout the empire who, when they come back, they're like, we know stuff. And they create the London Epidemiological Society in 1850. And their knowledge, their ideas, their methods, their information resulted from colonial expeditions. Welcome to the Death Panel. To support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism and request it at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today we are joined by author Jim Downs, professor of Civil War Era Studies and History at Gettysburg College who is here to talk about his latest book called Maladies of Empire, How Colonialism, Slavery, and War Transformed Medicine. Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm so thrilled to have you on the show. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. And we are also joined by Death Panel contributor Abby Cardis, who is a perinatal epidemiologist currently working in harm reduction. So first, uh, Abby and Jim and I are going to talk about his book. And then after that, Abby and I are going to take a second to talk about the current contextual implications of Jim's work and sort of the lessons that we took away from it. Abby, welcome back to the Death Panel. Thanks for having me back. So I have asked Abby here to join me uh, in speaking with you, Jim, because your book, Maladies of Empire, is really about sort of the early development of methods of what we now call epidemiology, which are methods to study health at a population level. And you argue this was facilitated by the bureaucracy of imperialism, allowing doctors to closely study many non-consenting subjects like conscripted soldiers, enslaved and colonized people, Muslim migrants, and other subaltern subjects of empire. It's really, in many ways, such an important story of how so much of the scientific knowledge about what is necessary for human survival, which we now take for granted, and it's really quite you know fascinating in the context of the pandemic too, all of this was sort of derived from discarding and exploiting human life at a massive scale. And I first I first got into your work because of a paper that you wrote for Disability Studies Quarterly about disability determinations during the Reconstruction era. So, right. Jim, to start us off, for people who aren't familiar with your work, can you tell us a little bit about what your background is, what your research interests are, and sort of how that led you to Maladies of Empire? So my research interests primarily focus on the 19th century and the intersections between race and medicine. And so my first book that sort of grew out where my first book is Sick from Freedom, and it's basically an analysis of the health conditions of formerly enslaved people. And what I uncovered was there was a major smallpox epidemic that killed close to 60,000 formerly enslaved people at the moment of freedom. So when we talk about people not reporting on COVID or statistics not fully representing the story, uh, that's actually a common theme within the history of medicine, especially when it came to the history of Black people during Reconstruction. People didn't talk about this, and they still Mm -hmm. kind of like don't talk about the fact that formerly enslaved people died during the Civil War, in which more soldiers died from infectious disease than from battle. Instead, we've sort of continually narrate the story of the Civil War and Reconstruction as just the story of political promise and triumph as a result of the Reconstruction Amendments. All of that is true. All of that is important. But there was also simultaneously um, a smallpox epidemic and a, a cholera pandemic. And that's sort of been literally you know, pushed aside and ignored. In doing that research, I also came across references to um, physically disabled uh, slaves, uh, formerly enslaved people, and mentally disabled, formerly enslaved people, and the ways in which the federal government, long before the Affordable Health Care Act and 
the Obama mm-hmm. initiatives, created a medical system in the country. And what that did was it created something in the ballpark of 40 hospitals, and they created hospitals and to use the 19th century term asylums mm-hmm. for disabled slaves. And on one level, you can look at it and say, wow, this was really a humanitarian effort, but it was actually a way to streamline and discipline the creation of a labor force so that you could take people who were not in the parlance of 19th century able-bodied and place them into these asylums so that they could be separated from those people who could work. Um, So again, this is a huge history that has been sort of not told um, about the Civil War, about Reconstruction, about the aftermath of emancipation. And in doing that research um, and doing the work on the smallpox epidemic, the government would say things like, well, listen, we don't, I mean, basically they didn't have a public health department then. And they would say things like, we don't have the resources to respond to this outbreak, or we're trying to get supplies from Washington, D.C. to Orangeburg, South Carolina, or to Shreveport, Louisiana, and we can't do it. And, you know, you're reading the records and you think it's the 19th century. It's the middle, it's the middle of a post-war period. It would be difficult to get resources. It would be difficult to deploy doctors. It would be difficult to develop remedies um, and cures and therapeutics, especially in the age of, before the age of microbiology. But then all of a sudden, a cholera pandemic broke out. Mm. And when the cholera pandemic broke out, it broke out in Asia, and then it spread to Russia, um, into Europe, across the Atlantic, and then down into New York, into um, the American South, and then further throughout Latin America and South America. And When that happened, all of a sudden, the government developed an efficacious protocol (laughs) to prevent the spread of of, of cholera, which was shocking because cholera was new to the U.S. There were only like three cholera epidemics prior and smallpox had been around since jump. And so in the book, I in Sick from Freedom, I thought, well, wait a minute, you say you don't have the resources, you say you can't get the materials, but here you're responding to this cholera pandemic. Clearly, there's something about how the smallpox epidemic only infected black people that the government and people didn't care. Um, whereas the cholera pandemic affected everyone. So mm-hmm. that's how I concluded in sick from freedom. But I wanted to know more. I was like, well, wait a minute, like how did they develop protocols to right. stop cholera? And that's what led to this book melodies of empire. And that's what led me to leave the United States, both physically, <laughs> metaphorically <laughs> and go to the archives in London, um, which is seen as the sort of epicenter for the origins of epidemiology, and to sort of begin to do the research on how did this field of epidemiology begin? How did people start to understand how to control, prevent, and stop the spread of epidemics? Wow. I mean, just first of all, thank you for that. That was such a fascinating, like, I I love how you walked through just sort of coming to this research question that um, you explore in Maladies of Empire. I mean, normally when we think of uh, the beginning of epidemiology, right, we think of like the story of Jon Snow making an intervention in a city, right? But your book looks at very different spatial locales. And I wonder if you could sort of talk about the project of the book. You know, what what is this book project that actually sort of came out of this research question of of where did the method suddenly come from to effectively deal with the cholera pandemic going on in the United States after this kind of, you know, uh, blanket austerity approach to public health? Because obviously you're talking about a period that predates um, what we traditionally think of as being sort of the beginning of epidemiology as a discipline, correct? Right. So basically what happens is the traditional story of epidemiology is that this guy by the name of Jon Snow, not to be confused with Jon Snow of Game of Thrones fame, um, faces a major cholera epidemic um, in a poor section in London. And to make a very long story short, he um, identifies that the cholera can be traced to a water pump. And this is what, what he does is he theorizes that it's in the water. And so there's this theory about cholera, which eventually people prove is, is accurate later in the 19th century. Um, it's his investigative method 
of interviewing people, of using statistics to track mortality and morbidity rates, recovery rates, um, his effort to sort of actually walk into the environment and to sort of, you know, analyze it. All of this is what has sort of turned him into the sort of father of, of epidemiology. And when I, so I knew that story. And so I went to London and I said, okay, well, let me see what else I can figure out. What I started to find out was that during the time when he was doing this, the British government had deployed physicians uh, to Jamaica and to India as all parts of the effort to um, fortify the empire. And these physicians initially were sent to care for the troops, um, the British troops. But ultimately, by 1850, which is right at the time when Snow was doing this, this guy by the name of Gavin Milroy um, is sent there to understand why cholera is spreading. And so, you know, Snow is working on his own in this neighborhood in London, but Milroy is working in Jamaica. And Milroy is basically arguing against a couple of things. He's basically saying that the notion of quarantine doesn't work, that there's something else with contagion. We don't understand it. We there's something that we have to sort of figure this out. And he's very much a sanitarian. So he's interested in how dirty, filthy environments are spreading disease because the time people thought of called miasma theory, which was that um, rotten vegetation, dead corpse, dead animals would um, lead to like, they, they would give off a poisonous vapor and that poisonous vapor would fill the atmosphere and, and then people would become sick. So that he was arguing against that and saying, I think we can point to something in the environment. What he does is, and what I, I sort of realized was like, he was there was this whole regime of knowledge production that was happening as the result of doctors studying formerly enslaved people and colonized people throughout the Caribbean, throughout India, throughout other parts of the world. And so when someone like Milroy returns to London, he feels like he's learned all of this stuff about disease transmission. Because like when an <laughs> epidemic would blow up yeah. in London, people would be terrified by it. They'd freaked out by it. They would be responding to it. The colonialism provided him with a kind of distance. It provided him with what we can call a bird's eye view of the epidemic because he was able <laughs> to he was able to get material from other colonial officials stationed throughout the Caribbean. He could even like, so he would be in Jamaica. He had, he would get information from all other doctors in Jamaica. He would get information from doctors in Barbados, even Spanish doctors in Cuba, American doctors in the, in the lower South. And so he was able to see the, the, the pan, the, the outbreak in ways that physicians who typically responded to um, outbreaks were very much localized in a particular place. And so when he returns to London, he's like, I have all this information. He's not alone. There are tons of, there's, you know, dozens actually of British physicians deployed throughout the empire who, when they come back, they're like, we know stuff. And they create the London Epidemiological Society in 1850. And they're, knowledge, their ideas, their methods, their information resulted from colonial expeditions. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is when we look back on the past, we cherry pick snow as the first and only epidemiologist who was investigating. But I can confirm. Yeah. But meanwhile, <laughs> you have all of these other doctors who are engaged in it. Now, here's the point, and it's, I, I could say this to you today on um, you know, but I couldn't say it to you last week. Uh, the editor of The Lancet just wrote an article about my book about this process. And he said that my book is basically upending the myth around Jon Snow by pointing to how epidemiology as a field has developed. And what I the argument is not just and this is the point. I don't want to now say let's replace Snow right. with a fleet of other British colonial physicians. Instead, I want to do a deeper dive and say, wait a minute, how were they able to study populations? And when I looked more closely, and this is because I was trained as a historian of slavery, I examined the ways in which the aftermath of slavery, the rise of colonialism, created built environments that allowed physicians to study a controlled population of people. So when Outbreaks happened in London or in other places. Doctors would try to respond to them locally. They didn't really have the opportunity to study 
population. Mm-hmm. And so the only other places they could do it be, were hospitals, which at the time were not places to come be, to be cured and comforted. It was like I said about the disabled slaves. They were just sort of placed. Hospitals were for people who didn't have families who and they saw they, they, they functioned more as like almshouses mm-hmm. um, yeah. and they functioned more as like soup kitchens today. Um, and then the other place was prisons. So those were the other and, and the military. Those were the three main places where you had concentrated population. And so mostly people didn't care if disease developed as a result of the crowded conditions within a prison or a hospital. Now, when you have the conditions aboard a slave ship, for example, where you have a crowded population in a confined location and there's capital attached to that and there's Mm -hmm. money involved in that. Now there's already a concern more to the point, there's not just an economic concern, but what's really fascinating for me is that the doctors start using the bureaucracy that they are trained to use to re- report and record on everything. And so they're using, they have to fill out reports every day. And mm-hmm. so when they're writing these reports, they're actually codifying, they're turning their observations into an analysis. And then they're able to bring that back to London and share it with their peers so that the first moments of epidemiological analysis begin in places that were designed by slavery or colonialism. And I can explain more about slavery in a minute if you want, but I wanted to like take a breath because I don't want to go too long, but that's, but that's the the sort of point. There were a lot of things that I appreciated about this book as a practicing epidemiologist. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I really appreciated was how clearly the book lays out how kind of inextricably implicated public health is in structures of power, you know, certainly in the time period that the book covers. Um, But I think that continues to be true. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. But there, you know, within the field, there is a lot of um, motivated, like naivete, maybe, (laughs) about how implicated the practice of, of epidemiology is in structures of power. You know, the I just appreciated how clear the book makes the historical contingency of the development of epidemiologic methods. Right. Um, but really, you know, the historical contingency of knowledge production generally, and certainly scientific knowledge production, which I think is also a story that's frequently sort of lost. Yeah. I mean, I would say like one of the things to think about is like, if we set this up and we say, well, here was, there's two stories about the origin of epidemiology and the right. one is Don Snow and he's in London and he's like, this great savior figuring things out. And I don't want to downplay him because his his discovery about cholera, cholera bacillus in the water is correct. I mean, Coke later proves it. And we know today that it's true. So there is what he did was right. And it's important. But if we think of that as the site of one side of knowledge production, and then we think about another site of knowledge production, and that is the fact that colonialism is empowered by the military and the military has the ability to walk into a village and to walk into people's homes and to create surveillance methods. And so one of the hallmarks of public health today and epidemiology is surveillance, but the origin is not John Snow with a couple good ideas in his back pocket. Exactly. It's actually coming out of military surveillance. And then if you think about, well, statistics and numbers, and it's really important in terms of COVID, we have to track morbidity and mortality. Okay, that's right. But those, the ideas of numbers, and which I'm happy to talk about in a second, originated before germ theory. So it's the only thing they had. But those numbers and that way of calculating and rationalizing and narrating an epidemic by numbers, again, comes out of military control, again, comes out of, you know, complete, you know, power imbalances. And so the field develops these methods in colonial places. And so the one part of the book I talk about is in Cape Verde. And there's a British physician who travels down to to Africa, who's actually deployed by the military um, to understand the spread of yellow fever. And he begins this whole method of interviewing everyone in the community 
in order to gather in as much information as they can about the pathology of yellow fever, whether it is yellow fever or not, whether it's contagious, where it started from. And then he returns to London and he shares this data with everyone. And, and it actually makes headlines in the newspapers. And so when Jon Snow goes into Soho, he's actually following in the footsteps of John McMulliam, who walked through a village in Cape Verde. And so, again, even, you know, despite the fact that Jon Snow's right in terms of his practice, his method comes out of a colonial endeavor. And I think that's something that we haven't seen. And once you have colonialism, it is all about power. And, 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 And the same thing about slavery. I mean, this idea that the slave ship becomes the site that places large groups of people in a congregated space and all of a sudden, doctors can start witnessing things that they couldn't witness in the metropole. They can start witnessing how long a body can survive without food. They begin to, and this blew my mind when I did the research, they begin to prove the existence of oxygen. Now, I'm saying, wait yeah. a minute. Everybody knows, everybody knows we need air to survive. And since Aristotle and before then, people knew the, the necessity of air to human life. But what happened in the mid-18th century is you have the creation of a new field of science called chemistry and chemistry begins to study how air changes in certain context. And so in European laboratories, they're looking at certain, they're using certain devices to measure how air is changing its quality, but it's theoretical. The slave ship becomes a site where they say, the air is changing the quality below the decks of the ships and it's leading to suffocation and death. And so, so by the end of the 19th century, long after the slave trade has ended, the Lancet, the leading medical journal and other, <laughs> other journals are citing evidence from the slave trade in order to prove scientific theories. I mean, this was mind-blowing to me uh you know so when you're i mean i just remember when i was in high school we had to like study the periodic table right no one would have thought that like you know oxygen on the periodic table has it's gained its validity through you know the slave trade right no absolutely and i I mean you know sometimes people are like well does it really matter if you know like the real origin story for something but i think what your book really speaks to is actually where the power comes from in the field of epidemiology, too, because the idea, if you just look at it through the Jon Snow story, right, the idea is that because he was right, he gained that sort of power to enforce the things that needed to be right. enforced in order for society to actually you know, implement his response. But what your work shows in sort of expanding this this origin story and actually really more than anything else, contextualizing these methods in a way that shows how they are integral to the extractive process of the colonial project. Right. I mean, this is like what made this possible. I mean, epidemiology is what protected these investments. Right. These horrific, brutal investments. And. You know, the the fact of the matter is, is that your work actually really shows where that power is situated. Where did Jon Snow's power to enforce his observations actually come from? So right. can you can you talk about, um, you know, how this sort of arises as a need in the context of slavery? So within slavery, I mean, slavery basically creates a built environment that allows physicians to observe the spread of disease across a population of people. And so prior to this, if I, you know, prior to my book, um, people would say, well, ideas about germs and disease all developed as a result of either the prisons and the hospitals or even the military in the 18th century. But then later in the 19th century, people would say that tenement houses and urbanization created all of these different environments that explain the importance of sanitation. I'm sort of looking at the ways in which slavery creates this new world. Um, It basically creates like the plantation becomes a site that allows physicians to study the outbreak of disease. So one of the things things that happens is during, I mean, I look at two things and I've talked about two things mostly so far, and that's been slavery and colonialism. 
The other is war and war um, intersects with slavery, at least within the, the context of the United States during the Civil War. And that is, um, as I mentioned, at the top of the uh, podcast, there was a huge smallpox epidemic that um, decimated the uh, black population. Um, and the reason for that is that when it initially began to spread among white troops, uh, there were a couple ways of responding to it. One was to quarantine people. That would be the most effective way of isolating the virus. The second way would be to do some version of inoculation. And then the third would be vaccination. So inoculation would be to essentially take the lymph from someone who was sick um, already with smallpox and remove it. The lymph is the fluid that forms under the vesicle of a smallpox, which sort of resembles a chickenpox. And then to infect someone with it um, in their arm. And then that person would then develop a mild version of smallpox and and um, clear it. So vaccination was the same process, but using cowpox. And during the war, it was difficult to get cowpox. And so what the South does, and this again, I, I honestly, to have a book where like, there were these moments where I was like, holy God, like they yeah. were mind blowing. Like, I was like, I had oxygen. I was like, okay, that's enough. Like that's, yeah. you, 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 you got your big moment. You're not going to have another one. So just <laughs> finish. Right. And then there's this chapter um, on the Confederacy in the Civil War, and they don't have enough vaccine material. So the Confederacy orders um, Southern soldiers to go onto plantations and to begin infecting not only children, but especially infants oh. um, with smallpox, because they believed in this sort of pro-slavery parable that children enslaved their bodies were the purest because when they tried to do this among the troops, there were lots of comorbidities. And so they were actually conferring other, there was like other kinds of illnesses that were being transmitted during this inoculation process. So they go on. So the plantation, the, the creation of the plantation allows for or facilitates the availability of all of these enslaved infants and all of these enslaved children. And I, I want to just make a comment on words because I almost did it here. Some historians would say it created the opportunity for enslaved bodies. And I, I really deplore that because bodies is almost like a euphemistic term that lends some kind of like interpretive way of thinking about it. I want to really accentuate the humanity here and say infants and children, because that's what they were. And so there's they, they're taking these infants and children they're infecting them with smallpox. They're coming back two or three weeks later to see if, if the virus took. And then they're using a lancet, which is a surgical knife, and they're hacking at their bodies and taking the lymph off of them in order to create a vaccine um, to protect white people from catching smallpox. And so slavery, so then you think, oh, that's bad enough. Well, guess what? <laughs> this is this is this is the origin of epidemiology. Right. Now you have all of these plantations, you now have all of these case studies. And now that you have an army that keeps accurate data, now you have the opportunity for one physician to look out across the Confederate South and say, okay. In these places, this is how many took. This is like this is how many did not take. And now you have the ability to say, based on all of these cases, this proved to be an effective way of creating vaccine. And so I thought, you know what? This is like a, a crazy, horrific example in U.S. history. And 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 of course, as I'm doing it, I'm thinking like I must be misreading or misunderstanding. Right. Um. And then, you know, the global approach to the book is to say, all right, are, do we see this in other places throughout the world? And the answer is right. yes. So mm -hmm. it's happening to orphans in, uh, in Spain who are basically infected with smallpox, sent across the Atlantic, brought to Mexico. And then from there, another group of orphans are then trafficked. And I couldn't believe this, from Acapulco to Vietnam. What? I mean, this was just like this global trafficking of children um, to create vaccine matter thwart the spread and control of, of, of smallpox. And so the, the, again, like the bureaucracy of empire, the bureaucracy of war 
is capturing these moments. It's recording these moments. It's distributing these moments in journals. And so doctors are reading them. So it's actually fascinating. At the end of the book, I'm, I, I mean, at the end of this report from one of these Southern physicians, um, he's quoting what's happening in Italy and Germany and other places because this they are relying on data from other parts throughout the world in order to prove the efficacy of using children to harvest vaccine matter. Yeah, I mean, and the the fact of the matter is, too, that these, like, I, I think it's important, right, that you're sort of working to assert where this data is coming from, because there is this kind of, like, process that it gets scrubbed from the record, correct? Right. I mean, you sort of describe... Um, your methods of how you actually sort of dug deeper, looking through earlier drafts of, you know, the same paper that's being published over and over for the example of I'm thinking of, um, you know, early on in the book where they're talking about Trotter on the Brooks and the issues with scurvy, right? Where you sort of have this process, right, of almost... I don't know. It's like almost like as the data gets refined, right? And as the presentation of the findings is refined by these people um, who are part of this sort of colonial bureaucracy of collecting right. and reporting data and sort of centralizing and, and doing these reports, right? And doing this interpretive analysis, I think most importantly, that context actually, you talk about it gets lost, right? right. And all of a sudden ships that had a name, like the Brooks, don't have a name. And it just becomes right. a reference right. to ships in general. Right, exactly. Well, and it's just naturalized, you know, like disembodied scientific knowledge, which right. I right. would argue is the primary way that people still understand and consume absolutely uh, like scientific data. Right, right. So the, the case of the Brooks was fascinating because what happens is uh, Thomas Trotter's on the, he's on the, Brooks and he notices all these people suffering from scurvy and there. So there's James Lynn's theory about how to cure it. Is it citrus fruit? Is it what they call animal meat? Is it wine? He doesn't, you know, people don't know these are theories. So in a history textbook, you would say, well, James Lynn, you know, created this theory in 17 something, something. And then everyone accepted it. Or, you know, um, Jenner said vaccination happened at this date and everyone accepted it. It's not right. like these are just theories and people are debating them at the time. And mm -hmm. so the bottom line is um, what happened is he goes back. I mean, this is like you know, I read this, like maybe a little too personally. He goes back to his advisor, he graduate as a his medical school. And he goes, look, I got to tell you something. This this idea doesn't, <laughs> doesn't work. It's like you got to actually I saw this, you know, this woman from Antigua, an enslaved woman, and she came onto the boat. And before we went to Jamaica and she told them to, you know, suck the juices uh, directly from the fruit. And it's not just eating it, but you really need to suck the juices out of the fruit. And that's what's curative. And by the time we got to Jamaica, they were all cured from scurvy because scurvy is a result of malnutrition and, and imbalance. So he, his advisor's like, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. You know, <laughs> and then he delivered his advisor delivers his lecture, um, you know, basically using Lynn's data and then um, Trotter then for, you know, still, like, he still persists and he writes up his account. And when he tries to provide an empirical justification for it, he writes based on a multitude of cases. And you read mm -hmm. that, and you're like, okay, well, that, okay, you have, you've experienced a lot, you observed a lot, and that's fine. But just as you said, he actually, those cases were enslaved people. The is institution of, Slavery, the transatlantic slave trade created a laboratory on the Atlantic Ocean that allowed him to see malnutrition, allowed him to witness the effects of scurvy, and then to then see once he got to the Caribbean how sucking the fruit directly from sucking the juice directly from the fruit was curative. And yet slavery is scrubbed clean from the story. The social arrangements that led to this. Um, multitude of cases is nowhere to be found. And so then we are left with this story in which slavery 
seems to be absent from the larger history of medicine, science, and epidemiology. Right. Mm-hmm. And instead, it's like slavery also affected science. And, you know, in this moment in the book, I show how it was actually scrubbed clean from this sort of the, 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 science, the historical record on scientific knowledge production. I feel like this might be a good place to maybe talk about the U.S. Sanitary Commission. They were sort of an innovator in using race and what we would now recognize as race science as mm-hmm. uh, like a framework for understanding infectious diseases and the spread of infectious diseases. Um, and in so doing, collected data in a way that reified racial difference. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about how the work of the U.S. Sanitary Commission connects to like how anthropometric, you know, measurements are still used to reify racial differences um, contemporarily and sort of how, you know, racial thinking and race science is baked into a lot of epidemiologic method. Like, you know, it's one of my sort of pet issues that almost all of the basic statistics that we use in epidemiology are derived you know, essentially straight from the eugenics movement, because that was the context um, that Mm -hmm. statistics sort of developed in. Um, So I'm I'm curious to hear you sort of talk about this. And if you if you have any, you know, I I understand you're a historian, so maybe it's not fair to ask you about (laughs) contemporary, um, contemporary stuff. But if you see, you know, parallels in what it means for, you know, scientific practice and knowledge production today, Um, And how, you know, contemporary science, contemporary epidemiology continue to like reify these these racial differences as as biological differences. Um, Right. Right. So I would say this. I mean, there's been a lot of work on the Sanitary Commission in the U.S. And essentially it's a it's a civilian core comprised mostly of women to provide relief work. Um, and support to troops, blankets, clothing, food, et cetera. And they took their cue from from Florence Nightingale, which I'm happy to circle back to in a second. Um, But ultimately, most of these studies have have examined the Sanitary Commission's work in a very, how do I put this? Like, I... In a very narrow way, <laughs> um, they, you know, they all acknowledge that it came out of, you know, the British Sanitary Commission. They all acknowledge, you know, its debt to Nightingale, but then it sort of stops there. And because the book is a global history, I wanted to think about it more. And so this is where it gets really complicated. When you look at someone like Gavin Milroy in Jamaica, or you even look at Florence Nightingale, they were by all contemporary standards, what we would define as racist. They believed in white superiority. I mean, they believed that white people were, you know, the superior race. They looked down upon all of these different populations who they encountered both in person and even on page through observations about medical conditions in certain areas. But they weren't invested, and this is the key, key, key point, they're not invested in making an argument on racial ideology. In other words, they would, Milroy would go into a village, a black village, and say they're dirty. But he'd also go into a white village and say they're dirty. Like, he's not saying that their dirtiness is necessarily a result of them being black or them. In other words, he's not saying cholera is breaking out purely based on racial identity. He's making very specific claims about the quality of the huts, the the problems with ear, the, the problems with the waterways, the problems with transportation. He's turning to sanitary measures. In the United States, at the same time, you have doctors who are actually beginning to study, like Jim Morton at the university around Philadelphia, around the University of Pennsylvania, saying the skulls of Black people are actually different. And if, and, and if we want to understand, you know, disease spread, it spreads differently among Black people and among white people. They're not making the same claim. It's not embedded within the analysis in the same way. It's not to say it's also, it's not to say it's not there. But it's not the leading metric. The leading metric for Nightingale, the leading metric for Milroy is sanitary issues. When you go to the U.S. context, there's the group of women reformers who are providing, who are cleaning the area up and are providing blankets and and so forth and telling people to wash their kitchen utensils within the army camps. But then... 
there's a core group of doctors and those core group of doctors take the benevolent efforts of women and they hijack it and they start this major process of studying black people as different. And they actually create a survey called the Negro Questionnaire, the, the, <laughs> the physiology of the Negro. And they come up with all of these different things like what's their height, what's their weight, what kind of food do they eat, you know, how do they react? So they use the, the sanitary commission, which is designed to like clean up the dirty areas, and they use it as a scientific apparatus to codify race, which is Ironic, given that they're on the side of the Civil War that is trying to abolish slavery and eventually going to fight for black equality. And so what happens is, is that they become and this is just my interpretation. Somebody else can interpret it differently. They become much more obsessed with race than the British sanitarians. They Not to say that the British sanitarians are not thinking about it. It's not to say it's not there, but it's not in the archival record. I didn't see like the questionnaire in the same way that I saw it right. for people. And now somebody would say, oh, but I saw this document or that document. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm not saying there weren't comparisons on Indians because they were looking at people in India and they were making making arguments. But the, the inflection, the focus on race is so different to the point where I have a, a case in my book where the one doctor is like spying on the black soldiers waiting. Yeah. I mean, and then like that was that was the one where I just I was like, oh, my yeah. God, what the fuck? Right. And then and then not only that, what's so fascinating is and this is the other point of it. The Sanitary Commission is supported by the federal government. The federal government now, at a moment when it's designed to free enslaved people and is then in the 1860s working towards legislation to end slavery, grant suffrage and citizenship, there is the creation of a scientific discourse that is solidifying race as a true biological characteristic. And so at that moment, we could have seen race as an idea just kind of die out. It's what Barbara Fields calls like racecraft. It's just an ideology mm-hmm. that kind of could slip away. And instead we see it, we see it substantiated. And then when you start following these doctors, they start interviewing slaveholders and a one guy who owned an auction house in order mm-hmm. to understand what we would call sort of biracial people. Um, so the ideas of Southerners And the observations of the person who ran the auction house for slaves is now becoming codified as a scientific fact under the guise of an institution supported by the federal government. That process is starkly different from the epidemiological society and the sanitarian work of Florence Nightingale. Like it's not you don't see the same process of race becoming codified um, as you do here. So to me, I guess I'm just saying, and again, one of the great things about doing history, I tell my students all the time, is interpretation. It's arguments. Then we can come along, come up with a different argument. My point is, and it's to respond to your earlier questions, this moment solidifies, it solidifies this idea that race has a kind of biological and scientific validity. Yeah. So this is so interesting because I think we would probably all agree that like race and ethnicity have a very important social meaning. Right. And so at the population level in Allegheny County around Pittsburgh, where I am, I know it was pretty difficult when COVID first started to get COVID data that was broken out by race, which can really hide, you know, inequities. But then race has a social meaning, but it doesn't have a biological meaning. But everything you're saying is very interesting because you wouldn't know that race doesn't have a biological meaning from participating in epidemiology, from reading, you know, the contemporary epidemiologic literature. So my um, where I went to grad school, our public health building was named after Thomas Perrin, (laughs) who was the Surgeon General of the U.S. um, that oversaw the Tuskegee uh, study in which Black men in the U.S. from, I think, like the 50s to the 70s were intentionally infected with syphilis right. and just observed, you know, treatments for syphilis were available for a lot of the, the period of time um, covering the study. But the impetus for the study 
was, I think, a a sincerely held at the time idea that the progression of syphilis would be different in black people and white people. Right. Right. Like, which is like a very racialist idea. But I remember like my grad union did some organizing to get Thomas Perrin's name, like taken off of this building. And I was called into a meeting where I was confronted with all this evidence that, you know, Thomas Perrin himself, you know, definitely wasn't a racist. And I think I offended people a little bit when I was like, well, it doesn't matter because, you know, this, (laughs) this study, you know, like the way that this was done is like evidence of this like racialist thinking. And even today, routine clinical measurements are quote unquote corrected for race, right? So measures of kidney function and lung function are the ones that I know of that are in clinical settings routinely corrected. And thankfully, I mean, people are starting to push back back on this, but um, there's, there's just a really, really long arm of this kind of like framing disease and not just infectious disease in terms of, you know, reification of race and like biological essentialist notions of race. Right. Right. And you want to, and like in that case, and like, this is the case that I saw in the 19th century, you want to be able to say like, all right, well, how are other people analyzing this and how are they thinking about it? So in other words, you know, how are physicians in the UK treating these issues? Are they Mm -hmm. Falling back on a similar process, are physicians in Nigeria falling back on a similar practice? It's like, so what I was seeing with lining up the Sanitary Commission in the United States versus the Sanitary Commission, the British Sanitary Commission, is to say that, wow, there's an inflection on race, there's a concentration on race, there's an emphasis on race as um explanatory, as an explanatory force, as a as the reason why you have all of these differences. There's there's a there's also the distinction between noting difference and arguing that the difference is the cause for something. Because, you know, even when COVID broke out in, in the end of in, 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 in the early spring of uh, 2020, there were higher rates of black and brown people. And the argument was to almost fall back on this idea that there's racial difference instead of saying this is about political economy. This is about the fact that more brown and black people are not able to self, uh, self-isolate. They're being forced to go to work as, quote, you know, essential workers in grocery stores and pharmacies and as, as you know, picking up the garbage on people's streets, you know, doing all this kind of labor. And then, of course, they're exposed to the virus. And, right. But instead of saying this is a result of the fact that they're exposed to it more frequently than other people, <laughs> they're just looking at the data and saying, well, they're black and brown and maybe there's some reason for it. They said that, as a, you know, there was a, it was just a beep on the radar, but it was something about Filipinos were suffering at higher rates than other groups. And it's like, except for the fact that most Filipinos Work in that you're talking about were home healthcare workers, right? I mean, it's like, it was just on. So in other words, this idea of falling back on it as mm. some way of explaining things really mattered. Yeah. People were arguing. I remember this um, at the very beginning of COVID, right? Like when yeah. the data illustrating these really severe, you know, racial and ethnic disparities in rates of, of COVID infection and, and mortality were starting to come out. Yeah. Um, you know, I saw a number of published, you know, I saw actual quantitative studies that were published as well as more sort of, you know, just qualitative, like commentary or opinion type pieces that were attributing, you know, the higher uh, COVID mortality rate, for example, among black people right. to like, the fact that black people don't get as much vitamin D. Oh God. I <laughs> you know, like so, like that. just completely absurd, like <sighs> biological yeah. and like, Oh my gosh. Now I even remember at the very beginning um, in, uh, I think this was in JAMA, which is a very prestigious journal, but um, before COVID had really like made the leap, you know, to the, to the U S beyond, I was seeing the argument that, you know, Asian populations are more likely to have a certain type of receptor on their lung cells. And that's probably why, you know, like, oh my God, just like completely. Yeah. Like frankly, eugenicist, but I think it's just, I can't, this point can't be emphasized enough. Like just how much we're still like living in the world. Right. Right. Well, Jim, I really, really appreciate you coming on. It's been an honor. I know you have to run. I really liked your book. I've liked your past work. Thank you for joining us. And thank you for sharing some of these stories sort of deeper beyond the immediate context of the book. Yeah, thank you so much. 
Yeah, I've really enjoyed talking to you both. Thank you so much for having me. If you want to check out Jim's book, it's called Maladies of Empire, How Colonialism, Slavery, and War Transformed Medicine. And stick around after the break. Abby and I are going to talk about some of the contemporary parallels that both of us saw as we were reading Jim's book. Abby, that was a lot of fun talking to Jim. And I wonder for you, you know, I know there were a couple of things that really stuck out that you wanted to talk about. We touched on this a little bit in the interview as well. But thinking about, you know, we always talk about science and technology, but thinking about science as a technology. Um, right. You and I had talked about this a little bit before we recorded, but per I forget the chapter in Capital, I think it's machinery and large scale industry. That's basically just like a history of technology. Um, the idea being that, you know, technologies are developed and used just like scientific knowledge in, you know, historically specific, socially contingent circumstances. And I think the book is kind of like a, a key to open the door to think about how epidemiology functions as a technology and fulfills its purpose as a technology with regards to capitalist <laughs> production, like facilitating right. production, you know, profit seeking and, and things of that nature. Yeah, I mean, that was the biggest thing that stuck out to me, too, is that really just in terms of what these methods become used for, right? We touched on this a little bit when um, Jim talked about how, in a way, the permission to study slaves who were in the cargo of the ship that Dr. Trotter was on, you know, that comes from like sort of this need to protect profit, right? And so you have immediately the collection of data and the surveillance, right? It comes not only with the sort of authority that's granted through this like military imperial complex, right? But it also really comes really only for a specific purpose, Right. And so it kind of contextualized for me how there are uses for this, right? For in terms of like what epidemiology does for maintaining the health of the workforce, right? Like that this, this sort of like has become obviously the primary function of data collection for the pandemic. If something doesn't like apply, to um, sort of general working conditions, right, then it's kind of being like rolled back right now. I mean, there's the discussion of, okay, well, we don't need mask mandates because um, most people are vaccinated and anyone who hasn't gotten vaccinated has made a decision or whatever the fuck, you know, like the Biden administration is saying. And the, you know, the fact of the matter that we've been asserting over and over on this show is like, well, that presupposes that there are no medically vulnerable people in the workforce, which is just fucking absurd and incorrect, right? But some of the ways that that's allowed to perpetuate is because we choose not to surveil and we choose really, you know, not to count people, disabled people in particular. And, you know, I just think that the way that epidemiology is not only like a technology of public health, right, it's specifically a technology of business, right, it has just become so clear in the pandemic. And I felt like, you know, that was a novel um you know, feeling or whatever observation that I was having during the pandemic and I'm reading this book and I'm like, God yeah. damn, like, <laughs> yeah, well, and I think so a lot of this is reflected, you know, because these things sort of co-constitute one another, right? Like scientific consensus, like consensus of scientific knowledge and systems of economic production and like and power kind of kind of co-create one another. But you can look, you know, this is all this fits very nicely with uh, sort of like the lifestylist mode of doing epidemiology or, you know, the 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 lifestyle and behavioral sort of school uh, or theory of, of disease causation in populations. Uh, if you look for like epidemiology jobs, you know, if you're if you're a master's student, a Ph.D. student, if you're looking for some kind of summer internship, whatever. You will find a lot of jobs that involve working for 
some kind of huge company, <laughs> right? <laughs> and like analyzing if the company has like a wellness program in place, you know, analyzing like the Fitbit data that they're collecting from the employees <laughs> oh, that are participating or, you know, just analyzing other types of, of health information about employees at a company. And I've had the conversation a few times with people who have been kind of in this position of, of job searching and, and looking at different options and being like, you realize that like that, <laughs> like they're looking for people who smoke, like they're looking for people who are high risk so they can like figure out who can get like kicked off the health plan. Like that's, <laughs> that's the ultimate purpose of this. Like we're not trying to learn something about, you know, risk factors for cardiovascular disease or whatever. Like this is straight up just an adjunct of, of management. And I feel like in terms of how, you know, how epidemiology and epidemiologic data are used as tools of biopolitics, like governance and population management. And that, that works differently than the way that I think most epidemiologists would understand the process that they are participating in, because the process that most epidemiologists think they're participating in is that they, you know, get some money to do some research. Never mind that that money comes from the federal government, right? Like already, like it's political from the jump. Like you get some money to do some research. You either use data that's already been collected. Uh, you know, of course, we don't think about how that data was collected or you collect your own data. We rarely think about, you know, the the, the sociological or the economic processes underlying right. um, data collection. You produce some kind of just like disembodied, like we were talking about, some kind of disembodied, um, pure scientific knowledge, some like piece of knowledge or piece of information that you then just like tie to a kite <laughs> with like a note that says like policymakers, please like, you know, make, make me a policy and then like, let the kite go. <laughs> it's just like, okay, I've done, I've like fully done science. Um, I think that, I think that that's not at all how it actually works. Um, right. and I think that that has become very evident. I mean, especially during COVID, I mean, you can see how, you know, the, the shitty papers that like, I don't know, Alison Krug and like, Tracy Hogue and all these people are pushing out, right? Like you can see like which papers get taken up, right? And like become part of the discourse and are incorporated very quickly into kind of like the, the policy apparatus around COVID. And those are right. almost always like the, the papers that um, confirm, right? Sort of dominant, I would say superstitions about COVID spread and what it means. And yeah, there's there's a reason for that, right? Like epidemiology, like th it's not it's not mathematics. There's no reason for epidemiology to like exist except for, you know, some type of political authority to use the information that's being generated. But, you know, as we've talked about many times on this program, I feel like there is a lot of motivated ignorance and like misunderstanding on that point. Right, right, absolutely. I mean, did Reading this book changed the way that you sort of thought about the framing of your education, right? Sort of. So the biggest the biggest challenge for me with this book was, you know, if you're a hammer, you think everything is a nail. And if you're an epidemiologist, you're probably a dipshit. And you think everything, <laughs> you know, like reduces to some kind of like quantitative argument. And so... You know, this, I think, is probably just a feature of me like reading history. But, you know, I'm reading this history and sort of like pumping my fist like, yeah, this is great. But then, you know, on the other hand, kind of worrying and be like, oh, like, what does this mean for what I actually do? Like, does right. this have implications for what I actually do? And I think, you know, what I've arrived at is, I mean, it does have implications for what I actually do. But in terms of <laughs> like in terms of literally like the data like the Excel spreadsheets that I like spend all day, every day manipulating, you know, I think that the primary argument of the book was like a historical one and not necessarily one about like how to do epidemiology better. Um, and, and that's okay. But, you know, I think on the, on the basis of the book, there is a lot to do. There's kind of a lot there in terms of informing how to do epidemiology better. So like, uh, again, something that you and I had talked about, like before the interview, this theme of sort of recovering 
lost subjectivity. Like one right. of the one of the grossest things sometimes about being an epidemiologist is like going to conferences, watching d- just devastating presentations about, you know, these horrible health problems, you know, infant mortality, <laughs> you know, right. Um, stroke, whatever. And having, you know, someone, some academic just like present this again, devastating presentation, stepping down from the podium. And then, you know, it's like a cheerful Q&A and people are snapping pictures, (laughs) you know, like grinning in front of the (laughs) in front of the podium and stuff. And it's just like, oh, wow. Yeah. Like there really is some subjectivity that is lost in the process of, you know, events in the real world becoming data (laughs) and becoming, you know, like an object of like dispassionate disembodied like statistical analysis no I think you're absolutely right Abby I mean just sort of the lessons that you sort of take away from reading this book are just that it's like very important to think about the historical contingencies and what sort of has carried through to today because obviously as we talk about all the time in terms of COVID right you know there are aspects of our political economy which have roots in the ways that our methods of like managing disease and um, paying for medical care, for example, right, have ultimately developed, right? So being able to see sort of a larger picture through work like what Jim does, you know, the way that Artie and I use Jim's work, it like, it helps us sort of understand like, what is the sort of context, what are these sort of contextual, like, prior assumptions, right, that sort of really become codified into law and start becoming codified into methods and into common sense. And then what are the downstream effects of that? And very much everything that we're seeing with COVID, whether it's a discussion of like whether or not children in schools need clean air or whether or not children are, um, you know, susceptible to COVID even, right? Um, these these sort of debates, right? There's this pressure to settle them. And mm-hmm. I think as Jim's work really shows, like that these sort of processes of uh, scientific consensus and medical, the creation of medical authority, really literally in real time, the creation of, you know, these sort of agreed upon truths about best practices and, and clinical standards, right? That this is a process that is, not clean, right? It's very messy. And it just, I think, is really important to sort of like back up my thinking for how a lot of these arguments have been going back and forth over things as simple as NPIs and and masking, right? Um, You know, all of these contexts that we have been covering like so closely throughout the pandemic, they really have obviously these... um, they interface with all of these authority structures and all of these sort of ideas that we have within our political and cultural imagination about what money is worth being spent and what kind of health is worth investing in. Right. And, um, you know, these are really important lessons, I think, to sort of like approach the next year of the pandemic with. Totally. I think they're really important questions to approach all, uh, certainly all of, you know, public health with because you know as you see it's like when people say that you know it's the problem is is that public health has been politicized you know there's one sense in which that does make sense right obviously things like you know bald cronyism like that you know i would say that that is like politicization that is bad and Um, there's nothing new about that though and there's nothing new about that but there is a professor at the University of Colorado um, named Daniel Goldberg, um, who has actually (laughs) published uh, like a short paper basically making this exact argument that it's like completely absurd um, to to claim, you know, to make the normative claim that that public health just shouldn't be political, that, you know, politics shouldn't enter into public health decision making. I mean, it's it's completely public health in particular is like completely inseparable from what we call, you know, the, the processes of politics. Um, what I really think are like the processes of, of political economy and power, but you know, just, I think that's maybe, maybe that's a nice like bow (laughs) to put on (laughs) this, um, that, you know, it's, it has always been true, you know, epidemiology developed out of (laughs) capitalism, 
what what's the subtitle of the book? Slavery, war, and colonialism. Col- colonialism, and so, slavery, and war. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, to say that, to pretend that epidemiologists are concerned only with questions of, you know, science and sort of factual data is simply preposterous. So hopefully people are well equipped to 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 point that out now. Absolutely. And this has been a lot of fun, Abby. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you for reading this book with me. And uh, again, Jib's book is called Maladies of Empire, How Colonialism, Slavery, and War Transformed Medicine. Um, if you want to follow him, you can find him on Twitter at Jim Downs one. If you want to support the death panel and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order health communism and request it at your local library or follow us at death panel underscore patrons we will see you early next week in the patron feed for everyone else we will see you later in the week as always medicare for all now solidarity forever stay alive another week 